Sierra Leone has enjoyed stability since the end of its civil war in 2002, though it's had to deal with a few domestic crises in the years since. Last year, hundreds of people took to the streets in frustration at rising inflation and economic hardship. The protests turned violent and led to deaths. Since then, President Julius Madobayo has been re-elected, but there were accusations of widespread irregularities in the poll in June. A former coup leader in the 1990s, Bayo's first civilian team was recognized for championing education and women's rights. But after the recent coups in the region, does Sierra Leone face a similar risk? The president of Sierra Leone, Julius Madobayo, talks to Al Jazeera. Julius Madobayo, the president of Sierra Leone, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. I was last in your country a very long time ago. It was more than two decades ago, in the year 2000, in the final years of your civil war. And I remember it was the most brutal, awful civil war. I was actually there on the day that the rebel leader, Ferdi Sanko, was captured. Bring me up to present. How is Sierra Leone now? Oh, we're a peaceful, democratic nation, making progress as far as development is concerned. Um, the war is now a thing of the past. We've learned quite a lot from that very brutal war, and uh, we intend to share our experience with the world. You say the war is in the past. I mean, I remember driving through checkpoints that were manned by, I think they were called the West Side Boys. They were child soldiers. They were fueled by drink and by drugs. I remember the rebels and some of the things they were doing. I mean, the, the total number of people killed is well over 70,000, I believe. Uh, and it's not just the people killed, there were people mutilated. I remember some of the survivors telling me that they were taunted before they were mutilated. Do you want long sleeves or short sleeves? And they, they were either had their limb cut off here or here. It was the most appalling atrocities. Is there still trauma in your country from these things? Definitely. We have not been able to deal with the trauma because there was no provision for that in the peace settlement. But definitely it was one of the most brutal wars in Africa. Um, we are happy that it has come to an end. And um, the participation of the locals in trying to heal the wounds, the trauma, and all the bitter experiences is really what is making us uh, succeed in trying to, to heal the society, the country itself. The country was divided. Is there still a problem with regionalism and tribalism in the country? We still have vestiges of that. Um, the war itself was really not on an ethnic or regional basis. Uh, most have called it a senseless war uh, because um, it, it did not have any of those sort of uh, characterizations. But um, what it did was to uh, it was actually a combination of various factors from um, bad administration to corruption to lack of justice, social justice. Uh, all of it, it was that which culminated into that war. So um, to describe it as being ethnic or what uh, does not fit ours. So quite a lot of people, uh, academics included, described it as uh, a senseless war because it did not have an ideology nor did it have the, the other descriptions that one would ascribe to 
some of the wars that we know in Africa. Let's look at the lessons from Sierra Leone. At one point in your country, I believe there were nearly 18,000 UN peacekeepers. But actually, the thing that changed things was 800 British paratroopers who went to Sierra Leone in the year 2000s. If you look at things now, two decades on, there's no appetite at all for an international intervention like that in Africa, is there? No. The world is distracted. There are too many crises. And uh, I don't think uh, there's space for that sort of um, huge UN uh, intervention although we have a huge presence already in the DRC. But uh, why we tend to give the credit to the various international actors that actually ended the war, I want us to go back to the local actors that played a very critical role, especially women, the Paramount Chiefs and other organizations that were there from the beginning but of course they do not have that presence and uh, to project what they were doing. But that kept the war, that kept the society going and hopeful that the war will come to an end. And if we talk about the sustainability of peace uh, without relapse into another conflict, it is because the, we Israelis wanted to end that war and we are looking for uh, a group that we help us because already the, the war was on. Let me talk about some of those who intervened, and that's the United Nations and United Nations peacekeeping, because there are lots of questions now about United Nations peacekeeping. In your country, they stayed there until 2006. They disarmed all of the various groups, and that mission is seen in the UN as a great success. If you look at the situation now, you had a large UN peacekeeping mission in Mali, which really didn't stop the violence and is now being kicked out of the country. And as you've already mentioned, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the UN has been there for decades and the violence is still raging. Is there a role for UN peacekeeping in the world now? There is still a role for the United Nations peacekeeping. But like I have said to you, uh, there must be appetite for peace within the country itself the various actors, the main actors, or certain um, uh, political, cultural, and other actors must be willing and ready to help the process. In our situation, in as much as the dominant literature out there does not talk about Sierra Leoneans, Sierra Leoneans played a critical role in ending that war. And that must be, that should be taken as one of the experiences to be factored into the mix as, as far as DRC and other places are concerned. The locals are important. And if you can identify what we happen now is the UN becomes the midwife to bring the, the, the groups together. But they, we are interested in peace, and we are interested in making sure that we make progress. But because conflict itself breaks down communication, what we need at that time, uh, most of the time, is actually that mediator. So with the Democratic Republic of Congo, the UN have tried all sorts of things, and certainly they've been speaking to the women and they've been speaking to the civil society, some of the sort of things that you've mentioned. And yet, nothing seems to work. Is there a new approach needed to DRC, and what is it? Um, I am not a scholar on DRC. I am very far off. I know quite a lot about it, but I'm not uh, deeply knowledgeable to make any uh, uh, um, categorical statements about what should be done. 
what I am trying to emphasize here is that the locals are important. Their contribution, their deep knowledge about what is happening. Sometimes um, the international troops that go in have no understanding of the underlying currents that are actually keeping the conflict alive. We've talked about the transition in your country since 2002, since the war ended. Is there any risk of violence returning? And you started your second term as president in July. There was an election. It was controversial. I'll get on to that in a moment. But as the results were announced, the opposition leader, Samora Kamara, claimed live rounds were fired at his office. Are you worried that violence could break out in any way in your country again? There were no shots fired there. There were claims of that. The police investigated. The um, um, uh, observers went there. They saw no, no sign of anything. Of course, elections are always contentious, as you would definitely agree. And therefore, quite a, in, the, in the process like that, like war, the truth is, first, the, is the first casualty. So people will say anything to, to, uh, to, to, to get the sympathy of the international community. Well, let me just pick you up on the election of exactly what happened, because I said it was controversial. You needed 55% to avoid a second round of the election. You Correct. got 56%, yes. according to the Election Commission. But an independent co coalition of civil society groups, National Election Watch, which has been looking at your elections for 15 years, they estimate you only got 50%. And also in some districts, there were reports there were more votes cast than there were registered voters. And the EU said that, that there was some mistrust around the electoral process. So just on the record, were you fairly elected? Oh, yes. I will win again if we went to the another election. I've worked very hard for the country, and there, there, there was every evidence you know, available even before the elections that I was going to win. The election was free, fair, and transparent. Of course, like I've said, elections are very uh, contentious. Even, even where we're speaking in New York, in the US, they're contentious. Well, I mean, uh, as we speak, I think given the President Biden's position is still being contested. <laughs> so uh, elections everywhere. We are a fledgling democracy. You have elections in Sierra Leone, but if you look around your region in recent months, in your part of Africa, power is changing hands not with elections. And I tell you, Mali, your next-door neighbour, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Niger, and most recently, Gabon, all coups. Yet you go back just a few years, and between 2008 and 2017, there were no coups on the continent of Africa at all. What's going on? Something strange is going on, and uh, we need to put our finger on that. The coups in different countries um, have different... Those who have cited reasons have cited different reasons for the coups, from, uh, uh, from uh, Gabon to Guinea to Mali to uh, uh, Niger, and so on and so forth. But I think um, we have to continue to try to understand the underlying reason. And I will not sit here and say I have that off uh, the cuff now. But I think uh, we should collectively make the effort to understand why this uh, trend uh, has, has picked up so quickly and is almost engulfing what was almost uh, uh, enormous. All of these countries in West Africa that have had recent coups are French-speaking, former colonies of France. Is that just a coincidence? 
Well, I think it is too early to say, and I, I don't want to jump to any conclusion at this point in time. But I think it behoves us all to actually make the effort to understand what is happening in the region so that we can try to uh, contain the spread of, uh, of extra constitutional changes. When President Mahmoud um, Bazoum was overthrown in Niger in July, um, the regional group, which you're a member of, said it would intervene militarily. Nothing's happened since. Was that an empty threat? Well, we decided as a region that it was unacceptable and that we are going to engage. We had started the engagement. It was not bearing any fruits. Um, and uh, we decided that uh, as and when it is necessary, we'll have to intervene militarily to, to, to reinstate the, the constitutionally elected government. So an we echo, have not done that yet. So an ECOWAS military operation is still looming. It's not something that you've given up on. Correct. But after that, a lot of uh, dynamics have changed. Um, the, uh, the coup leaders uh, are beginning to soften their position. They are beginning to accept dialogue. And quite a lot has happened. And um, what we are encouraging now is to take that dialogue for, uh, forward. Because um, military intervention, as you know, uh, it's not, not, not necessarily the best uh, way to deal with, especially in a situation like uh, uh, Niger. Would such a military intervention by ECOWAS, the regional group, require a Security Council resolution? Is that the only thing that would make it legal? Normally, yes, because uh, th th this would be intervening into another country. So ECOWAS wouldn't proceed without a Security Council resolution, in your understanding? I, I, I am sure I'm not the chair of ECOWAS at the moment. I am a member and I, 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 I believe that that is how we'll proceed. Let's talk about your own experience with coups because before you were the president, you were an army brigadier and going back a long period in the 1990s, you were involved in two coups. In 1996, you became the military head of state, but I'm gonna put say it before you say it, you became military head of state and then you called elections. So my question to you, are there good coups? I think this is the most difficult question I've had to answer. Yes. Um, let's put it in, into context. We had just come out of um, the bipolar world. The whole world was in a state of flux. The governments that were there, we had a one-party state that had refused any form of democratic uh, 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 tenets or principles. Nearly for 30 years, every attempt, democratic attempt, to change that government had failed. There was mass corruption with impunity. There was, they had caused such uh, uh, carnage as far as uh, uh, the management of the country is concerned to the point that we had a war. Some members, that was why I said, sometimes they say it's senseless, but people just got tired and went to the bush. We were young soldiers. We were sent to the front to fight. And yet, we didn't have the wherewithal. But at the same time, what was meant for us at the war front was being squandered in the city. So, I mean, um, when you send somebody to the war front, you must give him or her the wherewithal. 
So we believed at the time that we have a government that has caused this war and yet was benefiting from the war at the expense of our own lives. We thought it was a genuine reason for us to come and remove that and bring about democracy. And that was what we did. So you say there can be good coups. In Gabon, the ruler Ali Bongo was deposed. He's ruled that country for as long as I've been alive. And a lot of the population seemed to support what happened in Gabon. Was the coup in Gabon a good coup? I, 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 I will not describe it as a good coup. Um, I have described mine, the one I took part in, um, that I'm fully knowledgeable about, as a good coup because when we kept to our timetable, and even when some members of our particular of, uh, of us wanted to change, I stood up and said, if you're saying there was a second coup because some, some members wanted to renege and wanted us to continue as to change our uniform and, uh, and, and be uh, the true leaders uh, by just uh, conducting a fake election. I said to them, no, we came to reform and we have done what we can. We have to conduct a democratic election and give over, and hand over power to a, a duly elected government. That was how I had to remove my boss just so that we can have democracy. So when you look at um, bad governance to the extent that it can cause the war and divide and cause poverty and misery, I think it should not be accepted as democratic government. When you have authoritarian governments being supported sometimes by the West, I think that is not good too. Democracy is the rule of the people, and therefore they should enjoy from that. And that is why we thought that it was necessary. Everything, and nobody was coming to our aid. We were there suffering, we were there at the war front, we did not have ammunition, we did not cause the war, and yet we are supposed to put our lives on the line for a government that was not good for itself. Let's turn the page and talk about how the, the whole world interacts with Africa. Um, the United Nations back in 2015 set up something called the Sustainable Development Goals. 17 goals to try and improve all of humanity. We're well behind on all of those targets as things stand. The slogan at the time was nobody left behind. In countries like Sierra Leone, do you still feel left behind? Definitely. Maybe the continent itself, not just Sierra Leone. We've been struggling for reform of the United Nations Security Council, where 70% of the decisions concern Africa. And why we talk about representativeness in all uh, 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 world bodies, national bodies, we are yet, our, our plea for representation in the United Nations Security Council as a continent of 1.2 billion is, has fallen on deaf air so far, so far. So, yes, we feel that um, there is a deliberate attempt by some sections of society to keep us in the dark. You talk about reform of the UN Security Council. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is also talking about reform of the global financial system and the burden of debt. How would debt relief and debt restructuring make a difference in Sierra Leone? Definitely. 
we are not able to breathe properly. We need some type of debt relief or whichever terminology they give to it. Call it the Bretton Woods institutions and the, all the other international financial institutions that we are established at the end of the first, second world war. Things have changed. We have different aspirations. We are no longer uh, subjects of our colonial masters. Quite a lot has come into play. We are talking about climate change. We, uh, we provide one of the biggest lungs to the world to, to absorb uh, 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 the, 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 the byproducts of the many wrong things that are taking place. We contribute less than 4% of, uh, uh, of the carbon, and yet we are disproportionately uh, uh, enduring some of the, 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 the effects, the adverse effects of climate change. So the world is definitely not a fair place, but we are still holding on and we are thinking that a fair world will listen to us and say, yes, they are making a genuine effort. But there, there is a limit to what we can do and we need the support of the international community, not when uh, Sierra Leone is on fire, but when Sierra Leone is making effort not to be in fire. If you had less debt, would you put more money into education? Because that seems to be one of the landmark achievements of your government. 20% of the state's budget going into education. You've made schools free, both primary and secondary schools. Why has education been such a priority for your presidency? It is the biggest weapon for transformation in the world. It is the best investment in human beings. It is the best thing we can do we, if we are enlightened in the 21st century with fit-for-purpose education, a lot of our challenges won't go away, but we will reduce the impact on society. We are talking about inclusive development, leaving no one behind. That is why we have what we call the radical inclusion, meaning that irrespective of who you are, where you are, what political inclination you have, you should have access to education. It is the best weapon to fight poverty. It, it goes right across the 17 uh, SDGs that you have named. And without money, we had the audacity to embark on free quality education, a national program. We used the, what we get uh, from uh, domestic sources, revenue, so if we had support, if we had relief, debt relief, we can pour all of that into education and into health and food security. Because for me, these are the three pillars that keep the human being going. If you have good health, good education, and you have food security, there will be uh, 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 room for development and little strife. In January, Sierra Leone enters the world of big power politics with you sitting on the UN Security Council for two years. Um, how are you going to play it with regard to the various superpowers, particularly China? China has investments in Sierra Leone, yet on the other side you have the US and Europe who you're friendly with and they say, no, you should be on the democratic team. How are you going to play those different tensions? We are on the democratic team already. We've had several democratic elections. I say I'm a Democrat. Yes, but you have big investments with China, don't you? Yes, but investments, uh, one thing that we have not uh, suffered from, China intervening in our democratic process. We 
need help from everybody. We need support, technical support. We need the friendship. We need great partners. And we, we need partners that we respect us too, that we treat us as nations, treat us as nations that are yet, we are not 150, 250 years into democracy. And therefore, you should understand, when we stumble, we should not be punished as if we have committed murder. We should be treated as countries making a genuine effort to ascribe and take part in a process that is extremely contentious and difficult, democracy anywhere. So if you have done 250 years into that, and we are just 60 years into that, you should be handling us with some care, compassion, knowing that we are only at the, at, at, at the, at the, at the beginning. Julius Madabio, President of Sierra Leone, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you.